So I'm Pastor Michael. By the way, can you hear me? Okay. Um, I'm Pastor Michael, and uh, today we're going to start a new sermon series. And we are going to look at the book of Deuteronomy, which is part of the Old Testament. It's part of what we call the Torah, which is the five books of Moses. It's actually the, the final book in the Torah. And I want you to know, it's a very challenging book to read. There are a lot of strange and grim uh, legal codes. It talks about the wilderness wanderings of Israel. It talks about the military conquest of Canaan. All of these events which seem so remote to us. And so why are we looking at this book? Over the past several weeks, I've been uh, talking with Wade and John and Tracy, and I would show them passages. I would say, look at this passage. How are we going to preach through this? And I told them that I want to preach through Deuteronomy because it's so difficult. Because it's difficult, I want to preach it. I don't know if you have heard of um, what are called deconversion stories. This has been uh, in the news quite a bit lately. There are famous pastors who have deconverted. There are famous pastor son of kids. And it's trending on social media. Hashtag exvangelical. Hashtag empty to pews. There are subreddit groups. There are podcasts, so many podcasts. And when you listen to their stories, they talk about deconstructing their faith. And what they mean by that is they're asking hard questions, they're reevaluating their theology, and many are losing their faith. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, this has been going on all throughout the history of the church. But what is new is the internet. So that through social media, people have been able to find each other, and form a community together and support each other and get the, get the message out. And many are thoughtful. And I think there is a lot of value in reading their stories. And when you read their critiques, one of the main reasons why they find Christianity to be implausible is the Old Testament you will often hear them say things like, the best argument against Christianity is simply to read the Old Testament at face value. Because in the Old Testament, you see violence sanctioned by religion. You see sexual ethics that are out of step with modern times. You see laws that regulate and, and seem to condone, even to promote slavery. And it is hard to reconcile this moral framework of the Old Testament with modern culture. And that dissonance, that feeling that the world of the Old Testament is barbaric, that it is cruel and unjust, makes people question whether Christianity is true and valid. And what happens is, people either make substantial revisions to their beliefs so that they no longer hold to classic Orthodox Christianity or they cease to believe at all. 
and they leave the church and they leave the faith. I think that all Christians can sympathize with this struggle. Because when we do read the Old Testament seriously, we encounter a world that is very different than our own. And I think for many of us, we're not sure how to connect all these different and strange stories in the Old Testament to the life of Jesus and to our own lives. And so I want to preach through Deuteronomy because all of the problems of the Old Testament are right here. All the troubling ethical codes, all the disturbing history of conquest and warfare. And I want to persuade you, I want to persuade you of the moral beauty of the Old Testament. I want to persuade you that the society Deuteronomy describes leads to human flourishing. And I want to show you that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He is a God of love, but he is also a holy God. And ultimately, I want to show you that Deuteronomy is about Jesus. It's about his rescuing love for sinners like you and me. Because it's interesting, when you look at the gospel accounts, did you know that the book uh, Jesus quotes the most often of any book in the Bible is Deuteronomy. He quotes exclusively from Deuteronomy during his wilderness temptations so that you could almost say it is Jesus's favorite book. And then when you look at all of the New Testament, when you look at the epistles, Deuteronomy is the third most cited book in the Old Testament after um, Psalms and, and Isaiah. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Deuteronomy is about Jesus and it's about the church and it is about the Christian life. So my goal as we preach through Deuteronomy and Wade, John and I, we're going to teach it together as a team. My goal is to help you to understand the story of Israel in the Old Testament more deeply. And I want to show you all the connections to the New Testament so that if Deuteronomy were a web page, I want to click on all the hyperlinks that lead to all the, the other texts. Because Deuteronomy is the nexus of the Bible. It's the crossroads that all the different passages connect through. And I love the way one commentator put it. He said, Deuteronomy is the book of Romans in the Old Testament. It is the definitive theological explanation for the whole of the Old Testament and it guides the reader. It sets us up to read the New Testament. And so I don't know <laughs> if you can tell, but I am so excited to preach Deuteronomy. And we are going to go through it chapter by chapter. We are going to look at every text. We are not going to skip any text. We are going to spend uh, particular attention to the most difficult texts. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be a grand adventure. So today we're going to begin and we're going to read our text 
Um, but before we read the text, let me set it up for you. Let me give you a kind of mini introduction to Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is the, it comes at the pivot point in the story of Israel. It comes right after the wilderness wanderings and it comes right at the start of the conquest. In fact, the conquest has already begun in a sort of preliminary way with the with the, uh, the defeat of two Canaanite kings, which are mentioned in verse 4 in our passage, and which Moses um, explains in much greater detail at the end of chapter 2. And so what happens is Israel is journeying through the wilderness, and then they assemble, they encamp on the plains of Moab, which is on the eastern shore of the river Jordan, and they are, they are on the cusp. They are right about to cross the river Jordan into the promised land. And so that's the setting of Deuteronomy. And therefore, Deuteronomy is looking both retrospectively back at the 40 years in the wilderness, and it is looking prospectively to the conquest of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. In fact, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies and the leadership is transferred to Joshua. So Deuteronomy is looking both backwards and forwards. It's looking at the wilderness in the past and it's looking at the conquest yet to come. And that dual horizon, that sort of dual time perspective is the message of Deuteronomy. That's the point. And today, I'm just going to give you a very quick overview. It is going to be short and unsatisfying, but we have the rest of the sermon series to unpack it. And so today, we're just going to look at the first eight verses of the first chapter, which is printed for you in the bulletin. It's also going to be displayed on the screen. And so let's read the text. This is Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Listen. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazarat, and Dezahab. These are all sort of geographic markers in the wilderness in the land of Moab. Verse 2. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edrai. These are the two Canaanite kings I mentioned. We're going to actually look at their stories in depth at the end of chapter 2. Verse 5, Beyond the Jordan... In the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, 
I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them and to their offspring after them. This is the word of God. So I have three points. Here's my outline. Number one, why are we studying Deuteronomy? I actually already did it, so we're finished with point one. The next two points is the warning of the wilderness and then the promise of the land. So let's begin. The warning of the wilderness. Let me read to you again verses 1 through 3. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And then he gives a whole bunch of place names. Verse 2. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel. So Moses begins by giving us two numbers. Two numbers. In verse 2, he tells us that it is only 11 days journey from Horeb. Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. Every time you see Horeb, it's Mount Sinai. From Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the southern uh, border of the land, uh, uh, the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. So 11 days, right? 11 days from Sinai to the promised land. This is not an enormous stretch of land. It's actually not too difficult to cross. Um, and it's striking to me how precise this number is, right? It's not 10 days. It's not 12 days. It is 11 days. That's the first number. And then the second number, Moses says, and yet, verse 3, it has taken 40 years to make this trek. So 11 days... 40 years. What happened? Something disastrous happened. And we are going to look at this in great detail in a couple of weeks. Moses devotes the entire second half of chapter 1 to retelling the story. But here's the short version. The people of Israel, they journey across the Sinai wilderness. They arrive at Kadesh Barnea in short time. Again, not a long distance. They send out spies to scope out the land, the land of Canaan. The spies return and their report is that the promised land, the land that God had given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this land is unconquerable. The inhabitants, the the Canaanites, they are too strong and the Israelites are too weak. In fact, they use very vivid language. They say the land is filled with giants and we are but grasshoppers before them. And so the people wail, and they grumble, and then they fall into unbelief, and then they refuse, they refuse to enter the promised land. And then God, in His judgment and wrath, He declares that no one from this wicked, unbelieving generation will enter the promised land. And then for the next 40 years, the people basically walk around in circles in the desert until every single person dies. In fact, the text says everyone who was 20 years and older, in other words, everyone who was an adult at Kadesh Barnea, every single one of them dies 
and their bones are left decomposing in the desert. And therefore, don't you understand that Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, Moses is addressing the second generation. This is very important. He is speaking to the children of the first generation that came out of Egypt because everyone in that first generation is dead and their corpses are rotting in the wilderness. One of the main points of Deuteronomy is that it is warning, it is warning the second generation not to repeat the sins of their parents of unbelief and disobedience. And then in Deuteronomy, the second generation is given once again all the laws, all of the commandments of Mount Sinai so that Deuteronomy is largely a repetition of all the commandments that you find in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. And in fact, that's what the name means. The name uh, Deuteronomy is a Greek word. Deutero means second. Nomos means law. It's the second giving of the law. And Moses in Deuteronomy is then teaching this second generation to obey the Sinai commandments. You see that at the end of verse 3. You see it again in verse 5. It says, Moses undertook to explain this law. The word explain there means to expound. It means to teach in a very thoroughgoing way because this is Moses' final sermon. At the end of Deuteronomy, he dies, okay? This is his final sermon and he is pleading with the people to obey obey. Now, what does this mean for us? The crucial text is Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews is, in the, is a book in the New Testament. In fact, all of Hebrews is quite helpful. We are going to return to Hebrews over again and again throughout the sermon series. But Hebrews chapter 3 is looking back at the story of Israel in the wilderness And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but let me just read you two verses. Okay, two verses. Listen to this. Hebrews 3, 15 through 16. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, this is the voice of God. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's talking about the rebellion in the wilderness. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Do you hear what the writer is saying? He's saying to the New Testament church, let's look at this generation that rebelled in the wilderness because this is the generation that experienced the exodus which was the greatest salvation event in the Old Testament. This is the generation that saw the mighty hand of God bring the Egyptian empire to its knees, who rescued the people from slavery, who parted the Red Sea, who rained down manna from heaven, who gathered the people at Mount Sinai, and the whole mountain is covered in smoke and fire because the very presence of God is upon the mountain. And yet, that generation that saw all of these miracles, they fell into unbelief 
and disobedience, and so they perished in the wilderness, and they were kept, they were excluded from the promised land. And so do you hear what Hebrews is saying? Hebrews is saying, not everyone who is rescued from Egypt shall enter the promised land. That's what he's saying. Let me put it more pointedly. Not everyone who starts as a Christian will enter heaven in the end. Because it is not enough to start the Christian life. You have to finish it. You have to finish it. That's the message of Hebrews chapter 3. Let me read you one more verse. It's right next to the two verses I just read to you. Hebrews 3.14 says this, For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let me read it again because this is very important. For we share in Christ. This is our salvation. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You have to persevere in your faith. You have to persevere. That's what the Christian life is all about. And so Deuteronomy is warning us and Hebrews is warning us against spiritual laziness, against complacency in the Christian life. So that Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have to work. So that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You have to endure. IGC. Let me wait for the plane. (laughs) The congregation of IGC Hear me now. Do not trifle with God. Do not presume upon His grace. Do not say to yourself, I believe, now I have a ticket to heaven, and now I can relax and I can do anything that I want. But rather, take heed of your life. Take heed of your life, lest you fall into unbelief, and disobedience. So that's this. That's the first point here. I want to warn you. I want to shake you out of your spiritual slumber. Many of you are asleep. But where do we find the strength to obey? That leads me to my last point, the promise of the land. We're going to skip down to verse 8. Listen to this. See... I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So this is the Abrahamic covenant. And one of the things that I'm most excited about this sermon series is I want to teach you how to read the Bible. Because I think to a lot of people, the Bible is sort of this jigsaw puzzle of random pieces of different stories and contradictions that don't seem to fit together. But I want to show you the astounding coherence of the Bible. 
So in our story, the land of Canaan lies before the people of Israel. This is the land that God had given Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. And I want to ask a couple of questions here. First, what is the land? It's very important because we're given the dimensions uh, in verse 7. It's quite a wide expanse of territory. But if you think of it just as earthly territory, if you think of it just as farmland, prime farmland in the Middle East, you're missing the point. And here is the beautiful coherence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and and like I said, Hebrews is the keystone uh, book to help us to understand. In Hebrews 11, let me read to you verses 9 through 10. Listen to this. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, right? Meaning he was a pilgrim living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, here it is. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Hebrews is telling us that the land was pointing to something deeper. And within the Old Testament itself, we're given tantalizing hints of this. We're told, for example, that the promised land repeatedly is like a new Eden. It's this lush land flowing with milk and honey. And then in the very heart of the land, the people are instructed to build the temple, which is the very dwelling place of God. And therefore, don't you see, the land is a symbol of heaven. The land is a picture of our salvation and a fullness of life in God. This is why Paul in Galatians 3.8 can say the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham when he was promised this land. And when God told Abraham that your children will dwell upon the land, God was talking about the church. He was talking about you and I because by faith we are children of Abraham. Here's the second question. What is the basis of the land? What is the reason upon which we, the people receive the land? Here's the answer. The basis of the land is a promise. This is why in verse 8 it says, God swore. It's a promise made by oath, which means it's an unbreakable promise. So what does it mean that the land is given by a promise? You see, if I give you a promise, right? If I say, I promise to give you $1,000, you will say to me, what do you mean, right? What do I have to do to get this thousand dollars, and I'll say, no, you don't, you don't understand. I'm promising it to you. You don't have to do anything. I've already put the money in an envelope. See, I, I wrote your name on it. All you have to do is take it. Just take the money, and it's yours. All you have to do is believe. Just believe, and the money, and you, and you have the money. But if you don't believe, right, 
If you say, you're joking with me, you're playing a trick on me, I don't believe it. Well, then, of course, you don't get the money. Because all you have to do is believe. That's how promises work. You don't have to do any labor, any work, just believe. On the other hand, if I said to you, I will give you $1,000 if, if you do some yard work for me. I want you to come to my backyard every day, five hours a day, and after two weeks of this, I will give you $1,000. Then it's no longer a promise. The basis of the money would be work and your obedience. And the money, therefore, would be conditional. Do you, do you see that, right? It may or may not happen depending on whether you do the work. What is my point? Here is my point. The promised land was given on the basis of the promise of God. This is why it says God swore it by oath. And therefore, the people do not have to earn it. They do not have to labor and work for it because it is a free gift that they receive by faith because of God's grace. Some of you are saying, hold on, hold on. You just told me not five minutes ago that you cannot enter the land without obedience. You just told me five minutes ago that the first generation were excluded from the land because of their disobedience. So which is it? You can't have it both ways. Because if the land is given by grace, then it is not of works. If the land is by works, then it is not by grace. Which is it? This is the central tension in Deuteronomy. We will be looking at this question for the rest of the sermon series. What is the relationship between law and gospel? What is the relationship between faith and obedience? And the passage, I think, that wonderfully captures this tension is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Let me read it for you. And I want you to listen to the exquisite tension in the text. Verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. What is Moses saying? Can you hear it? Israel did not earn this land. They didn't labor for any of these good things, but it's given to them simply as a gift. But then listen to the rest of the verse. And when you eat and are full, verse 12, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so there it is. At the end of the passage, 
you hear the warning again, right? Take care, that's warning language. Take care lest you fall into unbelief and disobedience and so disqualify yourself from the land and then the land will cast you out. So which is it, church? Is the land fundamentally about God's grace or is it fundamentally about human obedience? Which is it? And the answer is that it's both. It's both. And we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking this answer, but let me give you the answer in brief today so that I don't leave you hanging. And there are two parts to the answer, okay? Here's the first part of the answer. As I said, in Deuteronomy, you see both principles. We're told repeatedly the land is given by grace. It's a free gift received by faith. You see that especially in Deuteronomy chapter 7, which in my opinion is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. I can't wait till we get there. Let me wait. Christina told me I get two weights for the plane, so I used my last one. All right. Um, so the land is given by grace all throughout Deuteronomy, and yet, if you go to the end of Deuteronomy, you see this long list of blessings and curses so that if you obey, you receive the blessings. You will prosper upon the land. If you disobey, then the land will turn against you and spit you out. And one of the key curses in Deuteronomy is chapter 21, verse 23. Listen to this curse. It says, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul in Galatians 3.13, he looks at that verse, and do you know what he says? It's talking about Jesus dying on the cross. So that on the cross, here's the answer. Jesus fulfilled both the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy. So that the land is absolutely based on obedience, but not our obedience, the obedience of Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we should have lived, and his blessing that he deserved, we receive by faith. And the land is absolutely given as a promise so that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. He took the curses that we deserve and he redeemed us by his blood. People often wonder, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? And the answer is God couldn't just forgive us because what about his holiness? What about his perfect moral standard? But at the same time, God couldn't just give us justice, give us the punishment that we deserve because what about his grace? What about his promise to Abraham? And therefore, don't you see on the cross, and this is the gospel, God's holiness and God's grace are perfectly satisfied. They are perfectly met. 
This is the brilliance. This is the beauty of the gospel. And so that's the first part of the answer. The cross resolves the tension for us. But there's a second part of the answer, and this is very important. At the core of Deuteronomy is a love relationship between God and his people. The word love in Hebrew is the word ahav. If you do a uh, word study of ahav in the Torah, it's very interesting how that word appears and is distributed. In the book of Genesis, it appears 15 times. Every single one of those times, it describes the love between human beings. So, for example, Jacob loved Rachel, ahav. The word appears twice in the book of Exodus, twice in the book of Leviticus, in that very famous chapter, chapter 19, where it says, you shall love your neighbor and you shall love the stranger as you love yourself. And in the book of Numbers, it doesn't appear at all. But in Deuteronomy, it appears no less than 23 times. And in virtually every single one of those cases, the word ahav is not describing the horizontal love between human beings, but it's describing the vertical love between God and his people. So either it's talking about the people's love for God. The most famous example is Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. Or it is describing God's love for his people. There are so many verses where it says God set his love on Israel. So that you can say the book of Deuteronomy is preeminently in the Torah a book of this divine human love. And all throughout Deuteronomy, therefore, we're given these images, these metaphors to help us to understand this love relationship. My favorite is Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31. Let me read the verse to you. In the wilderness, you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, listen, as a man carries his son. I love that. God carried the people of Israel through the wilderness like a father cradling his child. It's this incredibly tender metaphor. Here's the answer. The command to love is in the context of a love relationship. If you are a Christian, why should you love God? Should you, I'm sorry, why should you obey God? Should you obey God because you want to earn your place in heaven? Should you obey God because you're afraid of the punishment of hell? No. You should obey God because when you are in a love relationship, you want to please and delight the one that you love. You don't obey in order to get love. You obey because you are loved. Do you see the difference? And if you don't obey, if you consistently and cavalierly disregard the commands of God, then maybe you don't know the love of God. Then maybe 
you don't have that kind of relationship with him and your relationship with God is actually he's some sort of cosmic employer and you're doing just enough to get him off your back. What is your relationship to God? Jesus in John 8.31 says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In John 14.15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pray. Almighty God, what a marvelous gift it is to read your word in Deuteronomy. So many of us are negligent and uh, we find it difficult, we find it tiresome. But, O oh Lord, would you not plant a deep love, a deep seriousness, an earnestness to dig into the word and to hear what you have to say to us? And help us to hear the message of Deuteronomy that you so loved us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, all who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. Let our lives be lived for you because we love you and not for ourselves. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.